Hello and welcome to Socialism, the Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. My name is Lane Shale and today I'm sitting down with Dave Nellist. Dave is a member of the Socialist Party from Coventry. Formerly, he was a militant supporting Labour MP from 1983 to 1992. When I say militant supporter, the militant was the forerunner of the Socialist Party, the Marxist organisation that organised around the militant newspaper that was active inside the Labour Party from 1965 to the early 90s, winning people to the idea of revolutionary socialism, of Trotskyism and of Marxism. The militant members were hounded, chunted, victimised, attacked throughout that period, particularly in the 1980s. And Dave, as one of the most outspoken, fighting socialist Labour MPs, was one of those that was witch-hunted and eventually expelled from the Labour Party in 1991 for the crime of being a socialist, for the crime of opposing the poll tax and refusing to pay his poll tax alongside 18 million other people. But Dave, like other militant supporting MPs like Pat Wall and Terry Fields, who also served in Parliament as Labour MPs but as militant supporters as well, were also very well known not just for being fighting socialists but for sticking true to what they believed in, to their principles, and only taking a worker's wage, refusing to take the full MP salary. Dave, Terry and Pat took less than half what they were entitled to. They didn't want to rise above their class, they wanted to rise with their class. They were workers' MPs on a worker's wage and something the Social Party, our public representatives, still stay true to today. And so we're sitting down with Dave today just to talk to Dave and get a bit of a flavour of him about his time in Parliament and why he thinks it was important that as MPs that they only took a worker's wage. And of course this is in comparison against the backdrop of the ongoing news scandals that erupted in recent weeks here in the UK around MP Slees, MP Second Jobs, the news of Owen Patterson, a Tory MP, who was paid over £100,000 for outside consultancy work that in effect he was using to lobby for those companies in Parliament. Dave and other militant supporting MPs back in the 1980s and early 90s, in complete contrast to that. So we thought it was a great time to chat to Dave about his time in Parliament and about how a Marxist can use the chambers of government as a platform to voice the struggles, the concerns, as a tool really to win people to socialist ideas. I mean, that was a lengthy introduction, but Dave's a great person to listen to, and I hope if you listen to this, you'll enjoy it and learn loads. Hello, my name is Lenny Shell from the Socialist Party. I'm here today with Dave Nellis, a member of the Socialist Party in Coventry. Dave formerly was a supporter of the militant tendency and a Labour MP who was an MP for Coventry South East from 1983 to 1992 and after that also a Socialist Party councillor in Coventry between 1998 and 2012. He's often known and regarded in press and media as a workers' MP who took a workers' wage, one of three militant supporting Labour MPs in the 1980s who took that stance. And of course, we're speaking today against the backdrop of the news and the scandal around the whole series of MPs who have been found to work in second jobs, consultancy roles, which really arose out of the scandal around Owen Paterson, which we'll go into. And to draw a bit of comparison between the stance that Dave and other militant supporting MPs took in the 1980s and MPs both back then and today and really get to grips with just how Parliament works, how they get away with these sort of actions, which is of course causing huge anger amongst ordinary people. So I mean just as a first question Dave, could you give us a bit of an outline of what's been going on with MPs, they go into the second jobs they're taking and maybe if you could just maybe in comparison to them, how did you behave as an MP and how did you go about being the workers' MP on a workers' wage? 
Well, thanks for the invitation, Lenny. As you say, this most recent parliamentary turmoil around corruption has arisen following a quite lengthy investigation of a couple of years into a particular Tory MP in the northwest of England who was found to be breaking the parliamentary rules on acting on behalf of private companies in lobbying ministers in the government, effectively for preferential treatment. And although he was paid over £100,000 a year on top of his parliamentary salary, which is £82,000 a year, and that's three times the average wage in Britain, this wasn't a small affair. The Times of London has recently revealed that one of the two companies he was working for over the last 18 months got half a billion pounds, 500 million pounds of contracts to do with Covid from the government that he was lobbying and many of those contracts they got without any competition with any other firm. So it's an illustration of how Tory MPs in particular use the position of being a member of Parliament not only to make themselves lots of extra money, but to make the people they're working for, which isn't their constituents, it's these private firms, huge amounts of money, literally into hundreds of millions of pounds. And coincidentally, this morning, there's been a new document released which has named another 10 different Tory MPs who, over the same period, um, lobbied the government and got preferential treatment for one and a half billion pounds worth of Covid contracts. So this is huge big business and there are rules and one of the parliamentary officers found this particular MP guilty of breaking the rules and he was going to be suspended from Parliament for 30 days and that would have triggered the opportunity for people in the area where he's the MP to raise a petition to force a by-election and get rid of him as an MP. And what the Prime Minister did, Boris Johnson, was he came to Parliament the night that they were due to take that decision to suspend this MP for 30 days and got another one of his MPs to move a procedure in the House of Commons to abolish the committee that found this MP guilty, effectively to sack the parliamentary officer that had done the investigation, to put a new committee in place that would be staffed with a majority of tame Tory MPs and to suspend the punishment against this MP in person and he forced that through and it was such blatant rigging of Parliament that even the previous Tory Prime Minister John Major described the current Prime Minister Boris Johnson as politically corrupt. Now you know when ordinary families are facing wages that are falling behind rising rent and fuel and energy and food prices to see MPs on three times the wage of decent paid workers then earning tens or hundreds of thousands of pounds a year extra uh, has caused a huge amount of anger amongst working people and has meant for the first time for a long long time the government has fallen behind the opposition Labour Party in the opinion polls, not because Labour is doing a good job in attacking the government, but because so many people are angry about what the government have been doing. So it's a recent example of a long-standing practice, particularly amongst Tory MPs, 
And I know I make this a bit of a long answer, but when you ask the question, well, what did we do that was different? Well, in the 1980s, we had three Labour MPs who were supporters of the militant newspaper, Pat Wall in Bradford, Terry Fields in Liverpool, Broadgreen, and myself in Coventry. And we all agreed with our local Labour parties before we were elected that we would not make a personal profit out of going to Parliament. And the way we did that was to take the average wage of skilled workers in the area we represented. The easiest to explain is Terry. Terry was a firefighter for 27 years before he became a socialist MP. He stayed on his firefighter's wage rather than take a wage two or three times higher than a firefighter as an MP. In Coventry what we did, the engineering union used to do a survey every three months of all the big factories in Coventry about what wages were being paid so they could pitch the wage claims and so on. And we, with them, picked the ten biggest engineering factories in Coventry and got a quarterly assessment of a skilled worker's rate and that's what my family took as a wage which was even recognised by the BBC and others when they put out stories explaining this was an MP that was giving over half his wage away to charities, to trade unions, to campaigns and strike funds and so on. And in addition to that, we produced five reports a year for nine years on what I was doing as an MP. And in those reports, and there were 600 copies sent out to factories, to residents and tenants groups, to pensioners groups, to all the Labour Party members in the area, to even the churches and all, all sorts of places. And in that we put the accounts of not only what happened to the wages each year, but also any income that I got from journalism or TV appearances and so on, and where that money went as well. So it was a way of very publicly showing a different attitude to going to Parliament and if I was to quote a famous Marxist from about a hundred years ago on the Clyde in Scotland called John McLean who was a teacher and a post of the First World War and a Marxist leader in Glasgow at the time who famously said rise with your class not out of it and that's what we tried to do to stay on the same wages and living standards as the people we represented. Brilliant, Dave. And I mean, I'm from Coventry originally. I grew up, and you were always known as that guy that took a worker's wage. And my family, we used to see you in the shop and that. And you'd see when I was in Coventry, be yourself. People would still come up with a huge amount of respect for doing that. Because I think people recognise that in comparison to both MPs then and still MPs today, you were someone because of who you represented, where you came from as a militant supporting MP. The militant is now what the Socialist Party is. You carried out and you stayed true to your word, which you huge amounts of people both in Coventry and around the country truly respected and supported I mean you touched on some of the points there Dave about how you did it I mean why do you think it was important to take only a worker's wage let alone many of the other sort of standard luxuries well I think normal MPs often take I think I've heard you tell stories before about when you first went into parliament what you got offered about 10 years ago there was the whole MPs expenses scandal the whole thing about flipping houses and stuff which of course you never indulged in because like you said you wanted to rise with your class not above it why do you think that was so important to stay true to who you represented well I think it's essentially about treating the job of a public representative no different to treating the job as a rep or a shop steward in a factory there's the idea which is definitely promoted by capitalism and the capitalist media that somehow MPs are special and they're particularly better 
if they have outside interests and that's why directorships and consultancies or if they're lawyers carrying on with a law practice and so on gives them a wider view of society and we as socialists have a different view from that we actually think in terms of public positions it would be a lot better if a lot more ordinary people like hgv drivers or cleaners or nurses or ordinary folk were in those positions but one of the ways to insulate yourself against the expectations of a salary that's three times what working people get all the additional travel and invites for meals and holidays and the free gifts and so on which come the way of MPs is to isolate yourself from them and if you're on the same average wage as the people you represent and even more importantly in a sense alongside that at least if you live in the area with the people that you represent then you're sharing the same problems and if you're paying the same bills and got the same stresses when prices go up and you know petrol or diesel goes up or gas or electric and other energy costs go up you're more likely to not only understand the problems that the rest of the population are facing but because you're facing the same ones have a similar attitude to those problems if you're isolated from them you can stand back and take decisions because it doesn't really affect you. So in terms of the current way in which politics is organised, the current institutions under capitalism, we try to treat it just like if you got elected as a shop steward or an office rep in a workplace, you wouldn't get three times the wages of the people on your section, you wouldn't get three times the holidays of the people on your section, you wouldn't be insulated from their problems, you'd be sharing in those day-to-day problems and you wouldn't be taking different decisions that you would do if you were not affected by those problems and I have to say on a personal basis it keeps you sane (laughs) because without having anything extra to working people then you don't fear the loss of your career and your job in the same way as those who are being paid several times that wage would do. I mean, I can remember going back after I was expelled from the Labour Party and came out of Parliament. I only went back into Parliament about four or five times in the last 30 years, a couple of them with cups of tea with people like Jeremy Corbyn or Chris Mullin, and asking some of my former left MP colleagues you know, why there wasn't a greater reaction amongst MPs to the way in which Tony Blair, who became leader of the Labour Party in 1995, was taking the Labour Party even before he became Prime Minister a couple of years later. And it was explained to me, well, people have got a lot to lose. They can't afford to rebel against the direction of the Labour Party because if they get expelled and that, and they lose their job, it's a big thing to them. Well, if you're on the same wages before you go into that job, and when you come out of that job, <laughs> then you take a different attitude to the politics at the beginning and the end of that period. So it was not to isolate, not to insulate, Not in a patronising way to say sharing those problems, but it does personally keep you sane. Interesting. An interesting aspect there. I suppose you probably see that with Labour MPs, even the handful that are supposedly, I'd say supposedly on the left now, who stood alongside Jeremy Corbyn, who have done little or nothing to stand up against his suspension. Because primarily, like you say, they're also looking after their own wages, what they see as their career, if you like, rather than, like you said, representing the people of Comedy South East at the time. I mean, just as a side note, Dave, I remember you told me a story, well, you've told many a story a few times about that time, I think it was in 1987, about when they tried to increase 
MP's salary and you had to lead a speech and being, I think, lectured by, I think, was it David Blunkett? You maybe just tell us a bit about what happened in that situation. Yeah, that was about three weeks after the 1987 general election. And it was a proposal to raise MPs' wages by, I think it was £4,000 a year. And it's significant it was made three weeks after the election rather than three weeks before the election when it might have influenced how people voted. You know, MPs thought, well, we've got the election out of the way for five years, we can do what we like for the next few months, and by the time we get to the next election, hopefully people have forgotten about it. So there's this proposal to raise MPs' wages by about 4000 And in the mid-1980s, that was not far different from the take-home pay of you know, a young civil servant working for that government. This was a rise in MPs' wages. So I organised the opposition to that proposal and drafted a speech that was going to take about 15 minutes explaining you know, what the rest of the population had to live on and why it was wrong for MPs to be giving themselves such a big pay rise. It actually took, I think, over half an hour to deliver the speech because of the number of interruptions. The interruptions weren't coming from the Tory side. A lot of the Tories are quite relaxed about it because, as we've already discussed, you know, it's becoming, in many individual cases, ever more evident, a Tory MP's salary is a minor part of their income with what they're getting everything else, so they're quite relaxed about it. The objections were coming from the Labour side, were coming from colleagues around me who kept interrupting. But anyway, the debate went on and we called the vote and I haven't looked this up before this interview, so forgive me if I'm slightly wrong on the figures, but I think it was 39 MPs against the pay rise and not short of 500 who were in favour of it. It was overwhelmingly passed. And what was interesting was going through the lobbies, because the way in which they vote in the House of Commons is you sit in the chamber in the middle of the building and debate stuff, and when you vote, you either go to one side at the back of the chamber or the other side of the chamber or the other side, a yes or a no vote. And going through the lobbies, well, there was two things interesting. Firstly was the range of people who, for their own reasons, were there. And when you've got a binary vote, yes or no, people can have different reasons for voting one way or the other, which might not be the same as yours. And I found myself walking well, not arm-in-arm, arm, but shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with the Reverend Ian Paisley, who was also voting against the MPs' rise. Probably the only time in all the years in Parliament I was ever in the same lobby as Ian Paisley was. But the other thing that was really interesting was that there was only about half a dozen MPs in 1987 who had been Labour MPs before 1983. There were something like about 25 Labour MPs who voted against it, but three-quarters of them were ones who just arrived in 1987. In other words, they'd only been in there two or three weeks. They were still fairly well connected to their communities or their workplaces or their unions that they'd come from. And the point I'm trying to edge towards is that the longer MPs stay in that place, particularly Labour MPs staying in that place, the more the baubles of office and the next rung up the ladder play a bigger part in the decisions that they make to protect current and future careers. So we failed to stop the rise. It was an odd mix of people who voted against it. But what was, in my mind, quite significant was A, the small number of Labour MPs and the small number of 10 or 15 year serving MPs who voted against it, making the point that the longer people stay in there, the more the establishment sucks them in. Very interesting. If anyone wants to, if you go on Hansard, which has all the sort of records of a parliament, just search 
Dave Nellis or Terry Fields or Pat Wall, you'll see some fantastic speeches, but also some funny dialogue between yourselves and both Tory and Labour MPs on some debates. And particularly if you look up that debate, it's quite entertaining to read. I mean, Dave, you touched on a lot. I mean, I referenced how you were different, first of all, in terms of the stances you took, but you didn't just do that because you were a nice guy. I mean, you are also a nice guy, a really good guy, but really it was driven by your politics. And that's what sort of motivated and gave you the sort of understanding and the confidence to carry out that and stick to the stance of only taking a worker's wage, of always standing and voicing the needs and feelings of ordinary people in Parliament. And you see that through some of the Hansard dialogue and also obviously the reports from your time as an MP. But you obviously you were a supporter of the militant while being a Labour MP then. And obviously you were eventually expelled in 1991 by the Labour Party, the militant being the Socialist Party now. How did you see your role as a supporter of the militant and later a member of the Socialist Party and being an MP? I mean, not many people join or support the militant at the time or join the Socialist Party now with a desire to be an MP. But I think you saw yourself as almost being a duty. And yeah, how did you see yourself and the role you play as an MP, but also being sort of a Marxist, a revolutionary? I also didn't get involved with the idea of becoming... I mean, I joined the Labour Party in 1974. We had two general elections that year and came across supporters of the militant during the second one in October. And when we came to selecting a candidate to stand in what would become the 1983 general election, I personally thought I was third, fourth or fifth down the list of local Marxists who were much more experienced than I was, but for various reasons none of them wanted to do the job, so I ended up doing it. And from being elected actually first to the Westmoreland's County Council in 1982, because I also did four years as a county councillor, and then as an MP in 83, you get a platform that allows you to raise individual issues for working people, but much more importantly, collective issues for working people, that with the current way in which politics and institutions and the media and so on are organised, is not afforded to the vast majority of the population. And you've got to use it for that. So when there was any disputes or campaigns, then both in Parliament in the 80s and then the 14 years I was on the council in Coventry, you can use those chambers to raise working people's struggles that are taking place outside, gain them publicity, and in some cases, you know, you can get certain concessions, some of which, you know, if you, if you want another odd funny story, come completely from the left field. I mean, my last day in Parliament, or rather the last day I spoke in Parliament, in March 1992, there was a series of private members' bills that had been promoted by MPs on particular issues, which never get passed because all that happens is there's a long list and the Speaker of the House of Commons reads out these bills one by one and the Tory MP in charge of business that day for the government just says object and that pushes it back at least a week or two and nothing ever happens. But there was this particular bill written by somebody in the House of Lords, Muriel Turner, Baroness Turner, she was then, who had been Assistant General Secretary in the Union. And it was all about giving extra legal protection to health and safety reps on oil rigs. Because at that stage, in the early 90s, health and safety legislation in Britain stopped at the sea boundary, three miles off the coast, and obviously oil rigs are further away. 
And so Mural did this bill from the House of Lords that said we extend the legislation and it applies on the oil rigs as well, which meant that health and safety reps who raised health and safety issues on the oil rigs couldn't be sacked for raising an health and safety issue because they were protected by the employment legislation. And it wasn't on the list of the Tory MP for an objection. Now, my first day in Parliament in 1983, I spent three hours in the House of Commons Library with Dennis Skinner, who was a famous left Labour MP, teaching me all the ins and outs of how laws were made and how votes were taken and this, that and the other. So I obviously, and then with nine years' experience, had a bit of understanding of how the place worked. And on that last day in March 1992, the title of the Employment Bill Extension to the Oil Rigs legislation was read out and there was silence. So in about 70 or 80 seconds, I took that bill through every stage that was necessary in the House of Commons and turned it into law. And so the employment legislation was extended from the British Isles to oil rigs in the North Sea because a Tory MP didn't have it on the list. And I'd been there nine years watching how the place worked and knew what steps need to be taken. So you can get concessions on individual things, but that's not the important point. The important point is that you can give strength and confidence to working class organisations battling outside of Parliament in struggles and that's what's going to change society, not what MPs do in Parliament. MPs come along far down the process. Anything we've got in terms of extending democracy, such as the right to vote, such as the right to take strike action, including those things like equal pay or health and safety legislation, they've all been fought and won in class battles outside Parliament between workers and their organisations and capitalists and their organisations. And when that battle is settled, MPs come along well down the process and codify that into a law for next time. It doesn't work the other way around. And therefore I've always seen, Marxists always see, public office as a way of strengthening those battles outside the institutions, not thinking of yourself as you know, the knight in shining armour on the white horse that's changing all that stuff inside the chamber. You're a very small cog inside that chamber, but outside you can play a reasonable role in building strength of working class organisations and their confidence. I actually haven't heard that story before, Dave. <laughs> that's one of the few ones I actually haven't heard. And there's countless others I know which I think is really important, the point you drew there about how if you read some of your speeches, so you did in Parliament, on the one hand there was, and they're both related, you were standing up, voicing of collective struggles, warning people, but also on international issues as well. But you also did some amazing, almost sometimes bread and butter issue stuff that improved the lives of ordinary people. And many of them are still long lasting today, like health and safety legislation, the right to benefits, certain groups of people and so on there's a huge list of things that were won both by yourself Terry and Pat Wall just to sort of finish off Dave I mean you touched on some of these points but maybe just to sort of summarise what role does Parliament play I mean it's seen as the bastion of democracy even parliaments across the world in former places that were part of the British Empire they still model themselves on the British parliamentary system it's meant to be the sort of birth of modern day democracy something we've defended in wars and so on but how does the parliament actually work and what role does it actually play for capitalism and what do socialists say about it what do we say about how democracy should work I think parliamentary systems 
in a capitalist society act as a regulator of capitalism and the preserver of the status quo in terms of class relations, in terms of who has the money, who has to work for it, who doesn't have to work for it. And they ameliorate when there's sufficient pressure outside some of the worst aspects that face working people. So we've had 100 years of legislation that's brought around you know, welfare provision and regulation of standards and things like housing and all those things. Those things come through campaigns outside and then get regulated inside. But the essential relationship between the extremely rich within society and the vast majority of the population is regulated. And one of the ways it's done, and it's how we started this interview, is taking in the main most of the radical edge of those who go in to change the structures in the place and absorb them into the status quo. And we've seen in the last two or three weeks examples on the Tory side of MPs with directorships and consultancies and the amount of money that they get paid tying them to the system rather than challenging it. Now, let's be fair, it's not quite as blatant as that on the Labour side. You don't find as many Labour MPs with consultancies and directorships. But where you do find an exact parallel is what happens to Labour ministers after they come out of office. The public sector union, Unison, a few years ago, did a report on ex-Labour cabinet ministers and how they profited from that position of being Secretary of State for Health or Secretary of State for Trade and so on. And just to give one example, her name's Pat Hewitt. I think she was a Leicester MP when I knew her in the 1980s. But under the Tony Blair government, for a couple of years, she was Secretary of State for Health about, uh, where are we now, about 15, uh, 14 or 15 years ago. When she came out of the Cabinet, she got one job advising a private hospital firm and got £55,000 a year for that job. She got another job advising Boots, the chemist chain, on all their links into the NHS and got £45,000 a year for that job. She'd also had a bit of a role as Secretary of State for Trade and Industry. So when she came out of the Cabinet... BT started paying her £60,000 a year to advise them on how to get contracts with the government. And there are loads of Labour ministers and cabinet members against whom the same point could be made. So Parliament tries to absorb and knock the radical edges off individual MPs and then it holds the bauble out of riches to Labour MPs just as much to Tory MPs. I suppose that the only difference you could say is Tory MPs expect that as a birthright, whereas you know MPs on the Labour side have effectively been bought off. Now, that needs to change. And there's two levels at which it needs to change. Firstly, in terms of today's institutions, then we would argue, as socialists, that workers MPs should be on the same living standards as the people they represent. They should be on workers' wages, a skilled workers' wage, for all the points we made earlier on about not lifting themselves out of the day-to-day conditions of the families that they represent. And they should be subject to full recall. At the moment, it's only if you get imprisoned for quite a long time or suspended for more than 14 sitting days that there's a procedure in the House of Commons where people can raise a petition to try and get a by-election to get rid of an MP. It should be far easier 
in between general elections to challenge people who say one thing at a general election and then go off and do something different, particularly when it's personal profiteering along the way. Any expenses for MPs should be public and vetted by you know, local organisations, trade unions and the right. Secondly, there should be a single parliament. We should get rid of the House of Lords and get rid of the constitutional role, both of the monarchy and of a thing called the Privy Council. Uh, the, the reason I mentioned that, I'm not going to go into a long explanation, but it's one of these arcane institutions where still, by and large, treaties, making war, dismissing governments in former countries of the empire are done in the name of the Queen but through the authority of the Privy Council, the famous one being 1975 when the authority of the monarch was used through the Governor-General in Australia, Sir John Kerr, to dismiss the Labour government of Gough Whitlam and let in the equivalent of a Tory government in Australia. So single Parliament, get rid of the House of Lords, get rid of the constitutional role of the monarch and the Privy Council. So there are changes that we should make now, but... The sort of society that we want to build would be a different one. It would be a one that would have a different form of democracy. Firstly, far, far more positions within society should be elected, again, on those average wages and no personal profiteering from those positions. And far more aspects of life should be subject to democratic decision-making. So, for example, public services and renationalised public industries should be run on a day-to-day -day basis from the bottom up, not from a single uh, person at the top. So that's working people in the workplaces, having day-to-day -day control over production, over the local planning of the services or industries in which they work. And in terms of longer national planning, long-term planning of industry and production, then we ought to have a form of workers' management in which those who work in an industry, the wider society and elected national representatives can come and plan an industry. If I just give one example, transport. I mean, one of the big ways of fighting climate change would be if we nationalised transport, both rail, buses, haulage and so on, and moved everything quickly over to electric vehicles and made transport within cities and between cities free there'll be less need for other forms of transport if that was the case. And to plan that sort of thing, you know, everybody from those who drive a bus to those who repair it or those who work on the trains or work in the haulage industry should have day-to-day -day input into how that industry is run. But on a national basis, we would need not just to have unions and reps of the staff within the industry planning on a national basis, but you'd need to take into account the views of those who use transport, the views of those who provide the steel or the components to make the transport, because there's a wider societal interest. And I think that will be the main difference in how socialists see democracy in a socialist society. More elections, more frequent elections, no profiteering by the people who are successful in being elected, bottom-up control of the day-to-day -day life in work and a much more democratic and planned way of using the resources of society for the needs of working people. Now, just to finish in two sentences, that's not 
a prescription, a perfect way of saying it. Because you're not going to get to socialism until millions of people have got an input in how society is run. And that can't be done by even a dedicated and well-intentioned group of a few thousand people in the existing you know, membership of the Socialist Party. The sort of society we want to see happen is where millions of working people own and control the wealth that they create and democratically decide how that wealth is best spent for them and their families. So the big thing about our form of democracy is it involves millions, not just 650 people in Parliament. Fantastic, Dave. And, I mean, really eloquently put there, I think it says it all really in terms of what we in the Socialist Party are fighting for. I just hope that if you're listening to this today and intrigued, inspired by both the stance and fight Dave took, but also, as I think Dave would always say, is he did it because he was a member of the Socialist Party and before that, a support of the militant. If you're interested in getting more involved, listen on or read on to some of the contact details where you can get in touch uh, with the Socialist Party and really join the fight for the sort of society Dave highlighted there at the end. So thanks, Dave. Thanks for talking today and we'll see you around. Thanks for listening. Socialism was produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for Works International. Today you were listening to Dave Nellis, one of the original workers' MPs who only took a workers' wage. who served in Parliament between 1983 and 1992, was expelled from the Labour Party in 91. And I forgot to add an introduction that Dave was also a Socialist Party councillor in Coventry from 1998 to 2012. And you can find further reading, some other news and a bit more about what Dave and other members of ours got up to in Parliament and other forms of bourgeois democracy in terms of how they used it as a platform for workers' struggle and social struggle in the notes of your podcast app. And if you want to get in touch with us, find out more, you can email us at socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. As always, it's just worth making the point that Unlike other news outlets, we have no big business backers or adverts, which allows us to maintain our political independence only to the working class. We rely on all of our funding from our members and supporters. And you can help fund this podcast by making a regular donation of one of payment at socialparty.org.uk forward slash donate. But even more important, if you've been inspired by what Dave did in Parliament and some of the ideas and things Dave said today, and if you've been listening a while, things we've said over many weeks, if you agree with that and want to get more involved and find out how you can join the fight for socialism, get in touch with us at socialparty.org.uk forward slash join. We want you to be a member as well. And if you live outside England and Wales, anywhere around the world, and want to join the fight for socialism wherever you are, contact us at socialistworld.net, which is the website of the Committee for a Works International, the international organisation the Socialist Party is part of. So until next time, I hope you enjoyed the pod. I'll see you around.